can't read. My name is Lauren Burke and I can't read. <laughs> I'm actually like blowing up the text like an old lady. Like Judy Dench, I can't see. <laughs> Judy Dench. <laughs> you should watch um, Tea with the Dames, and they just talk about like how big this, like the text has to be on their scripts. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. Like can't see anything, and apparently they can't hear anything either. So that was funny as well. Okay. Welcome to Bonnets and Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are talking about Frances Burney. Yes. I'm very excited um, for many reasons. One is that you've done all the research, so I get to hear you just, you know, explain to me who Frances Burney is. Um, and two is that we have a very special guest. Uh, we are going to talk to Jenny Batchelor today, and um, we'll give you her bio later. But I mean, I'm sure a lot of you guys actually already know who she is. So we are talking about Frances Burney. I have been researching her for a little bit now. She is... Would we say she's a contemporary of Jane Austen? She kind of sits like a little bit before her, right? So Jane Austen mm-hmm. grew up reading Frances Burney's work. She was a fan. Uh, one of the, I think the probably the first time Jane Austen's name appears in print is in the front of one of Burney's books because she was a subscriber. So we know that she was like reading this, these stories, like lapping them up, big fan, loved it, inspiration. And then you kind of dig deeper into Bernie and you realize that actually she's super interesting and lived this absolutely mad life where loads of random stuff happens. So this will be a bit of a whistle stop tour. And then uh, Jenny Batchelor will kind of give you a lot more sensible information in the interview. Okay, sound good, Lauren? Sounds great. Also, I am taking notes for my upcoming screenplay based on Francis Bernie's life. So, you know, give me the hits. No way. I'm going to write it. If anyone's writing, it's me because I'm her number one fan, Team Bernie. Okay. Well, we can just like work it out between the two of us. How about that? Yeah. Good. (laughs) Like all things. So uh, Francis Bernie, also known as Fanny Bernie, and then after her marriage, also known as Madame Darblay, because hint, hint, she marries a French man, was mm-hmm. born on June 13th in 1752 in a place called Kings Lynn. I don't have a clue where that is, Lauren. Sorry. Oh, like haven't been, really, haven't been. Have no idea where that is in the country. Could look it up. Prefer the mystery, personally. All right. Yeah. Mysterious. She is described as a novelist, a diarist, a playwright. I'd like to call her a letterist as well, because she wrote a lot mm-hmm. of letters. She wrote four novels called uh, Evelina, or The History of a Young Lady's Entrance into the World, Cecilia, or Memoirs of an Heiress, Camilla, or A Picture of Youth, and The Wanderer, or Female Difficulties. A lot of oars in there. Oars. Each one has an oar. It's like, oh, this title's good. Maybe this one's good. I don't know. You right. Think. Right? <laughs> Man, I have the opposite problem, Bernie. <laughs> yeah. Give me one. One right. So um, something I like really love about Frances Burney is that even right at the start, people can't agree on what is going on in her life. 
So when you kind of go to her account of her childhood and like family accounts, there's this mystery that kind of suggests she had learning difficulties or that she had Mm. some kind of issue that was stopping her from learning how to read and write at the same rate as other children, right? So maybe she had dyslexia, something along along those lines. But then when you read around her education, you realize that she was the third of six children she was a girl. Um, her mum died when she was, I think, just 10 years old. And she was eight when she taught herself to read. So it could just be that she wasn't getting the education she was supposed right. to be getting. The, right? because, the education um, or the attention. Yeah, yeah her mum was sick for a couple of years before she finally passed away. So, like, is it that Frances Bernie couldn't learn or is it that she wasn't given the opportunity? Because mm-hmm. she teaches herself to write at the, uh, teaches herself to read at the age of eight by the age of 10 she is writing secretly just all the time as much as she can by the age of 15 she's written a novel and burns it because she doesn't think it's good enough for people to see all right okay so i she like has, her style yeah she has like the super complicated relationship with writing um when she publishes uh, her first book she uh, evelina it she does it in secret she's been working as her dad's uh, assistant he was a musician a music historian and she would like write up his manuscripts and send them to publishers on his behalf right assisting mm-hmm. him so then when it came to publishing her own stuff she gave herself different handwriting because she didn't want people to recognize hers that's crazy it's wild. <laughs> it's all it's all wild um so yeah so she wrote uh, her first two books then I think what's really what I also really love about Bernie is that like she is an author who she's like 41 years old when she gets married right and we know that women Mm -hmm. at the time she should have been married long before she should have had children long before she gets married at 41 to a French immigrant Alexander Darbley they have their son Alexander a year later so she's 42 when she uh, has a kid and then the family because she's um, married this French immigrant they don't have a lot of money coming in, but she makes so much money when she sells her third novel, Camilla, in 1796, that she buys them a home and they call it Camilla Cottage. Oh my gosh. I think she has like a thousand pounds. So uh, she and Alexander, well, Alexander goes to uh, back to France in 1801, the same year that Jane Austen moved to Bath, just as a little, mm. little context for you. Um, and then... Francis and their son Alexander uh, who I think is six at the time they follow him so Alexander the dad has been offered a job in Bonaparte's government this is after the French Revolution and at the outbreak of the Napoleonic Wars okay and the family end up stranded in France for a decade they cannot leave they can't go back to England there's a blockade she can't write to her family she's in Paris and luckily like they have money right they're not like stuck mm-hmm. in France poverty stricken but in 1810 I want to say she starts feeling pain in her shoulder and so by 1811 she's having a mastectomy and her right breast and the only painkiller she has is laudanum and wine and she's oh like Apart from when she faints, she's like awake for the whole thing. And she writes this fantastic letter, which is, I mean, it's a hard read, but it's so important, right? Because one, Mm -hmm. there are so few women writers that people talk about 
these days like from that time but also to have like a first person account of a mastectomy in 1811 crazy and then so this letter that she writes is written in uh, 1812 and she writes it three months after the surgery and then I think she never looks at it again wow that would be a hard read that would be a hard read I, I agree yeah exactly um, so eventually the family returned to England permanently. They moved to, can you guess? I bet they moved to Bath. They moved to Bath. And <laughs> in 1818, the year which books were published, Lauren? That would be Mary Shelley's first uh, draft of Frankenstein. Oh, also Northanger Abbey and Persuasion. See, it's all coming oh, wow. together, right? All of these authors, like they're all at a time well in 1818 yeah they uh moved to bath and uh sadly her husband passes away so oh i don't know why wow. i kind of opened that sentence so cheerfully what's really <laughs> sad about bernie actually is that um she outlives both of her parents her husband and her son and oh wow she lives until the age of 82 and passes away eventually in 1840 so she had a long life and what's really sad as well is that her output kind of uh, dwindles a lot towards the end so she still is writing letters and stuff but she isn't putting out novels in her own lifetime she saw her work become less and less popular mm-hmm. so that's like a, a a sad end to the tale right we always talk about Jane Austen's life being cut off so soon and the things that she would have gone on to write and then you've got mm-hmm. Francis Burney, who goes off and achieves all of the things that we wish for Austin, you know, publication, financial success, um, the chance to live with someone that she loved. You know, she marries Alexander against her father's wishes. She travels, she sees more of the world. She has this long life, but it doesn't necessarily mean literary success. So, right. Yeah. Um. So, Jenny... Is going to chat with us a little bit more about Francis and a little bit about Jane and uh, a few other gals that we should be taking note of. Jenny is an expert in the long 18th century. Now, I know what you're wondering. Why is it long? Hmm. Lauren, do you know why it's a long 18th century? Why is it long? This sounds really rehearsed because this is how I wrote the notes, guys. It's like a bit, <laughs> doing a bit. So the long 18th century typically runs from the late 1600s and it includes the glorious revolution all the way to the battle of waterloo in 1815 so being an expert in the long 18th century is be it's like being an expert and then some right it's like an extra expert so it's funny that you say all that hannah because jenny's latest book from nush pow is women's periodicals and print culture in britain 1690s to 1820s another long title Another another long title for a very long 18th century. I'm sure a lot of you guys already know Jenny Batchelor or follow her on Twitter. She used to work at Chotten House, if that name kind of sounds familiar to you. And she currently works at uh, Kent University. Jenny's work primarily focuses on women's writing, authorship, periodicals, and women's magazines, which we are going to get into Jenny is also the patron of the Kent branch of the Jane Austen Society, and uh, we might talk a little bit about that as well. So I hope you guys enjoy. Well, I've worked on women's writing for you know for a long time, and yeah. uh, but mainly mainly 18th century women writers. But 
I don't know. I have the, I have a very loose definition of the 18th century. It kind of sure. starts in about 1680. It goes up to I don't know 1840 sometimes. So like <laughs> it's it's a very long period. And um, you know, I'm a really big Bronte fan. As but like I don't ever teach Bronte. I don't research on Bronte. I just like reading Bronte, right? So oh really? Um, okay. Yeah, I'm just a big I'm just a big women's writing fan, really. But mainly in the 18th century because it was just stuff I knew nothing about. You know, when I yeah. first started studying English, and all of a sudden I realized there were all these women and why didn't I know about them and I just wanted to know more and more and more about them so that's kind of where it all came from really when were you sort of introduced to women's rights because I feel the same way like I didn't get that education in high school and then maybe just a little bit in college and then suddenly I'm in my 20s and I'm like I want to why haven't I heard about this book I really want to read this book yeah, no, I know. well so I so I mean I'd, I'd read I mean I like I started reading Jane Austen when I was about 10 I think but I mm-hmm. I um, and I did Jane Austen in high school for A-level I did Emma and I remember my English teacher very, um, uh, very pointedly saying one day, "Well, you know, the thing, the thing that's remarkable about Jane Austen is that there weren't many women writers before her, and the ones who were around weren't very good." And I thought, "Oh, is that what a sweeping right? statement?" Yeah, and it's you know, like it was, it was when I was eighteen, the the internet was just just coming just coming into existence, really. So like mm-hmm. it wasn't I could easily go fact check that, and I so I sort of took it and thought, oh, I don't know if that's true, but anyway, that's what my teacher thinks, so maybe it is. And then um, then when I went to university, I did my undergraduate degree at York, and I did a, a fabulous eighteenth century literature module which I loved. And there was, and I was reading like in advance of the classes, and there was um, was one woman writer on it on the whole module, just one, and she was um, it was Sarah Fielding, and I'd read I'd read Tom Jones before I'd gone to university, so I knew about Henry Fielding, but I didn't mm-hmm. know she, I didn't know he, he had a sister at that point, and and I read her novel, which was um, The Adventures of David Simple, and I thought, wow, this is this is great. I've never heard of her. I've never read this novel before. But then what was really frustrating was I got to the it was as we were coming up to the week where we were actually going to discuss it in class, the 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 edition had gone out of print, I think. So it got mm-hmm. pulled from the module. So we never actually talked about it. Oh no. I, I it just made me so mad. I was like, okay, well, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that I'm not being taught. That there's no women writers on my module. I don't know about this stuff. I'm just going to start reading. And that's really mm-hmm. kind of where it all started, really. I just started reading and then did more and more. And, you know, as I sort of, when I went on to do my master's, I did a bit more and my PhD, I read loads more. So, um, yeah, it just all came, it came out of annoyance, I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think that's the same here. I'm embarrassed to say that I have not read Francis Burney just yet, but I'm looking forward to it. So, I mean, just for me and then like our audience members who don't know who Frances Burney is, do you have sort of like, you know, just like a little synopsis of like who she is, what period of time she, you know, she yeah. wrote in and all that good stuff? Yeah, I can talk about that. I mean, she had like the, she had the most extraordinary life. Like why it hasn't been made into a movie, I will just never know because it's just so extraordinary. So yeah, no, I, I can, I can talk about that stuff. That's, that's, that's fine. And when you get to read Bernie, I'm sure you'll love her because she's great. I mean, even if, you know, even if people don't, go straight to her novels, just dipping into her letters, her letters and diaries that she kept for like 70 years. They're just, they're amazing. They're, they're t- I mean, and actually until when people stopped sort of reading her novels for reasons that I, I still don't fully understand, but when they stopped reading her novels, she was still widely read as a sort of memoirist all through the 19th century, all through the 20th century, because virtually nothing happens in the later 18th century that she doesn't write about, you know, like in her whether it's the madness of King George or whether it's the 
impeachment of Warren Hastings or the American Revolution or like whatever it is, she has something to say about it in her letters and her diary. So, um, and she's just really funny. <laughs> you can yeah. see where Austin gets it from. <laughs> right, right. And we have, so we have a good, um, like just log of her material then. We have a lot of letters. We've got a lot of journals. Oh, like, like. the letters and journals, I can't remember exactly, but it's in excess of 10,000 pages. Like it's, oh, wow. I mean, like it takes up a ho- like pretty much a whole one of our bookcases in the library at my university is filled with her diaries and letters from about the 1760s when she starts writing them. So she keeps them until she dies in 1840 because she lives such oh a gosh. long time. So, um, yeah, they're just extraordinary. And they've been recently edited. So, um, yeah, they're, they're amazing. They're so much fun to read, especially her young ones. I think her teenage ones are just – have a daughter who's 11. <laughs> and I can kind of – I can say, like, sort of um, – yeah, teenage teenage Bernie. I'd really like to be her friend. <laughs> she's 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 very she's very fun and she's very she's quite acerbic sometimes. She's pretty caustic when she wants to be, but she's just really funny. You know, she's just really funny. So her 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 father is Dr. Charles Bernie, who's a very well known, famous man. He's a he's a musicologist, so he writes these big works about the history of music. He's a composer and he's a musician and he's well known. But her mum, uh, her mother was somebody called Esther Sleep and Esther was a, Esther came, was from French, it was a French descent. Um, it's been found out fairly recently that she was from a family of fan makers, like he had a shop and they, and they oh. ran their own sort of fashionable fan makers sort of shop. So, and they had, they had, and uh, Charles Burney and, and Esther Burney had um, six children so Bernie had three sisters and two brothers, but they were all like precociously talented. So a lot of her education came in the house. It was a really cultured mm-hmm. household. You know, they music, literature, the arts in general um, were just really just part and parcel of kind of daily life, really, in her house. So like one of her brothers, Charles, was a kind of class, became a classical scholar. And another of her brothers was a naval officer. He he travelled on one of Cook's voyages to the Pacific. Um, so uh, so yeah, I mean, he, so she had this sort of quite incredible cultured household. But it was really sad. Her mother died when she was just ten years old, um, and uh, then her father remarried just a few years later and brought with her s- some of her children from her previous marriage and then they had two more children so th- she ends up in this oh, wow. big blended family of like 11 kids she hates her stepmother her stepmother doesn't much like Bernie either <laughs> <laughs> um and uh yeah but it's but but for all its tensions it's a very cultured household it's just expected that you're reading and you're writing or you're listening to music or you're playing music or you're you know you're reading books just for the sake of reading them kind of all the time it's just kind of what happened and is her father sort of like um supportive of like her writing and reading and all of that good stuff hmm well yes and no okay (laughs) Um, in the sense that yeah he does in the sense that he as I say it's just kind of expected that you know reading and writing are things that you would do and it's hard to imagine her turning out quite the writer that she was um if she hadn't been brought up in that particular household, but he's also, as I said, like he, because he's so well known, like he's, he has such a reputation in, in, in the public eye. He's, he's very, um, he's very aware about what any of his children actually can do to his reputation. So, mm-hmm. and Bernie is re- like, she, Frances Bernie was so conscious of this as a, as a young woman. So when she first publishes her first novel, Evelina, um, she's, which she publishes anonymously, she's so worried that um, 
if she's found out to be the author and if people don't like her book, it, it, it wouldn't just be bad for her, it would be bad for her father. Right. Um, yeah. And later on as her career develops, you know, the thing she does after writing Evelina is she writes, um, she writes a play which is hilarious. It's such a good play. I love mm-hmm. teaching it. My students love it. It's been recently staged in various places and it's very popular with audiences. But she writes this play, which is really funny, but her father suppresses it because he thinks that it's a kind of, it's a satire on phony learning. It's a satire of people who think they're intellectual, but really don't know anything. It's kind of like, <laughs> it's like a kind of a, it's a it's a play which is very current in some ways because it's really about like mm-hmm. you know truth and post truth and and, mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff and and all these people who are saying that they know stuff that they really don't know and claiming mm-hmm. knowledge that they don't have and it's really funnily done but her father was really worried that some of the sort of the prominent like blue stockings and intelligentsia of the day would think it was a satire on them and that that would then mm-hmm. hurt him and his own career because prominent people would be annoyed by his daughter's play and so he said you can't ever put this on and she was mortified. She was just mortified by that because she, she'd worked really hard on this play. She knew mm-hmm. it was good and she'd revised it over a long period of time. And in the end, she couldn't, it could never be performed. She never saw it performed. Oh, what's that play called? Now, now I want to read it. It's called The Whitlings. Okay. It's really fun. And the first, I mean, when you know her family, well, her mother was um, from this family of fan makers as well. It sort of has an added sort of... Um, so I mentioned it because the first scene is actually set like in a haberdasher shop. So you get all these characters mm-hmm. sort of meeting there and having these bizarre kind of almost like Oscar Wilde type um, exchanges and these funny little sort of epigrams and things they kind of come out with. And you start to get to know each of them through all the silly things they do in this shop. And then the, then the plot starts to kick in and, and, um, uh, and, and you get to see sort of how it unravels. But it's a really funny play. It's a really good play. What do you think is um, like driving her writing? Like why is she writing um to entertain i mean it's obviously a lot of the women writers that we study here too it's like it's need for money yeah it sounds like that's not the case yeah well except that she did need money um okay so although her family although her family um is is not poor by any standards nonetheless you know she she doesn't get married till she's 40 years old so she's she's somebody who is um uh, so she's a dependent, right? You know, as a woman, mm-hmm. she's, she's a dependent and she's reliant upon, you know, male family members for allowances. Um, and so she, so money matters to her very much. It matters to her even more after she gets married because her father doesn't approve of her husband. And okay. um, and also her, her husband is a French, she marries a, a man called Alexandre Darblay, who was a, a Frenchman, who was a Catholic, He'd be, he was sort of liberal politically, but he'd been dispossessed because of the French Revolution and had to leave France. So he had nothing. He, he, he had had lots and he came with nothing. So it really mattered to her to, to write for money. But so she so, yes, money mattered to her a lot. And she writes about mm-hmm. what she gets and how disappointed she is actually often with what she gets for the for the for the novels that she writes and how much mm-hmm. money she earns from them. She also has a period where. Um, she she a very unhappy period in her life where she ends up being a kind of lady in waiting. Um, I think her official title was the second keeper of the robes of Queen Charlotte, but she was a lady in waiting to the Queen, um, which she detested. She absolutely hated it. Um, but while she was there, she couldn't. She wasn't really allowed to write. I mean, she 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 did okay. write, but she wasn't really allowed to. But it gave her an annual income of two hundred pounds a year. Um, and then when she left the court, which she did very gratefully she sort of had a pension from that of a hundred pounds a year but along alongside her writing but I mean I th- think the thing about Bernie I mean the money did matter to her but 
really mm. what the set the really strong sense you get reading her letters is she couldn't help write she couldn't help but write like it was just something she always did from when she was a kid she'd written a novel before she was 15 it, it she burnt it <laughs> uh, on a big fire one day when she was a teenager but she'd she'd always written and she writes about writing as something she can't not do like she just has to keep writing it's like a compulsion she describes it as I am fascinated that she was a lady in waiting. Yeah, I know. I know. How did that even happen? Oh, well, it was a really complicated situation. And it was mm-hmm. partly that she was kind of outmaneuvered into it, really. I mean, it wasn't something okay. she she wanted. She was, right. you know, she's people like Bernie, like Jane Austen, are kind of problems, you know, for, for the families that they're parts of because they get to a certain age. They're, they're not married. I mean, like Jane Austen, Frances mm-hmm. Burney had a marriage invitation early on in her life. She turned it down. Um, and, you know, so then she's sort of heading, she's in her 30s. So, you know, in those days, very much considered to be kind of past it. And mm-hmm. and she and she doesn't have an obvious, she doesn't have an obvious role, you know. Other than, I mean, she's writing, but, you know, she doesn't really have an obvious role outside of that. Um, and it's no, I mean, it's quite clear that Charles Burney, her dad thought that, you know, her being in the court could help him. It could help his career. And so she has various friends who are trying to sort of help Burney out and find out, you know, what she could do. And she ends, and 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 frankly, you know, the queen is just a big fan of her writing. Like she really likes her first two novels that come out, Evelina and Cecilia, before she gets taken in into the royal court. But then once they decide they want her to come, there's this sort of complex um, process of vetting her to make sure that she's mm-hmm. actually suitable for the job and there's this sort of quiet insistence that and you have stopped writing haven't you you're not going to keep writing are you because we don't want you writing when you're doing this um, mm. and she very sort of reluctantly I think again partly because of her father that she, this is something she's going to have to do but she detested it I mean she really detested her time there she and if you read her novels it's quite obvious that she would I mean she just you know, like Jane Austen, she hated pretension. Like she just hated social artifice. She her novels really wittily just puncture it at like every page, you know. So it was not and it was also a very difficult time. I mean, from our point of view, reading her letters, it's it's great she was there then because she watches the madness of King George like unfold, like right in front of her. There's she writes <laughs> there's one letter which is I mean, I'm laughing, but actually it clearly terrified um Frances Burney where um she, the king is chasing her around Q, trying to kiss her. He has no idea what he's doing, and she's terrified, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but she sees all this happening at first hand and writes about it in her diaries and, and, and letters, but it was a miserable time. She felt like she had no privacy. It, it wasn't the world she wanted to live in at all, and she was very right. glad to get out of it. <laughs> That's fascinating. I, um, so her first novel was anonymous, and then she – what? So what is sort of the driving factor between going from anonymous to, okay, now I'm Frances Birdie? Yeah, so so the, well, so, I mean, the thing about anonymity is, you, you know, you can kind of, um, you can kind of put too much emphasis on it, I guess, because, I mean, so the mm-hmm. first thing to say is that virtually the vast majority of novels in the period that Bernie's writing are published anonymously. Like it's mm-hmm. 80%, I think, of, of right. novels are published anonymously at that time. So it wasn't weird, really, for her to publish Evelina anonymously but she had other she had very particular reasons for wanting to do it I think so mm-hmm. you know as I say like because she was so very conscious and made to feel so conscious about her father's reputation she knew that I mean she actually writes this and there's a there's a, a, a poem at the beginning of Evelina where she which is effectively to her father although 
because she's anonymous, she can't say it's to her father. It's just addressed to, and then there's like a long line, but really she's writing it to her father. And she says, well, you know, I, I know I cannot raise your fame, but I don't want to sink it. You know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to damage your reputation if people read this novel and don't like it. So that's partly why she publishes the novel anonymously. I mean, she was, she, because the other thing was as a, as a younger woman, you know, before she writes her own novel, she, um, was a transcriber of her father's works. So she wrote the copies that got sent to publishers of her father's histories of music. So publishers knew her handwriting. Okay, so when she okay. tried to publish Evelina, apparently she, the manuscript, she disguised her handwriting so that so that publishers wouldn't know it was her. Um, and she got her brother, one of well, her brother Charles, to kind of negotiate the sale of the novel in disguise. Mm-hmm. Like he wore this big scarf, apparently. So because everyone knew his <laughs> were, like so that people wouldn't recognize him. But then the thing is, when Evelina comes out, it's such a smash hit. Like it's hugely popular. Everybody loves it. She's definitely, you know, she's the new kid on the authorial block. You know, everyone's really desperate to know who she is. And then within a few months, one of Francis's sisters goes to her dad and says, you do realize that Francis wrote that. And so he gets told. And then it becomes an open secret really quickly. And there's no point pretending mm-hmm. she's not Francis Burney after that. Like everybody knows who she is. So, okay. she, may, so she may as well kind of trade on it really for the other novels. Yeah, it was a huge and 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 Bernie is great because you read her diaries and letters around the time. And on the one hand, she seems to be really kind of worried about all of this and worried about her reputation. Like, what what is her public reputation going to be if people find out that she's the author? And on the other hand, you can see she just loves it. Like, she absolutely mm-hmm. loves it. She loves the fact she. I mean, she writes one letter where she talks about how the year is going to be sees the most important event that's kind of ever happened in the history of the world. And it's the publication of her novel. And she sort of basks in it on, on, on the one hand, and then she sort of gets a bit worried about it at others. But um, yeah, it's wonderful how she sort of, how she writes about those tensions in her letters, really. Now, do you have any um, like favorite Bernie anecdotes? Anything that your like classes too also really respond to that make maybe make her feel like modern or relatable? Well, I think, I, I mean, I Actually, the st- so there are lots of funny stories that happen mm-hmm. um, sort of throughout throughout her letters and diaries. So, I mean, I often tell this story about the, you know, King George chasing her around Kew and what they think about that. And there are some really funny dialogues in her letters. She reports a lot of conversations in her diaries. So, I, you know, they're, they're often very funny because she can be very rude about some of the people that she's in conversation with. But to be honest, for me, um, the anecdotes that most stick out and the ones that really grab my students' attentions are actually some of the more more poignant ones, I guess. So sometimes the more, tra- mm-hmm. I mean, in some cases, outright traumatic ones, um, like when she was diagnosed with breast cancer, for instance, um, in 1811, I think it was, she was in France by this point. Um, she, they got, she and her husband after, uh, a while after they got married, kind of got stuck on the continent for about 10 years in exile. They couldn't get back because war had broken out again between England and France. And while she's out there, um, she finds this lump on her breast. She doesn't tell her husband. She goes and gets medical advice and she's diagnosed with breast cancer and they decide that um, she needs a, a mastectomy and she needs it really quickly. And mm-hmm. so she has one without anaesthetic. Um, so she faints twice, I think, during during the procedure, but she's mostly conscious for it. It lasts about 20 odd minutes. And she writes this extraordinary letter, which took her, I think she says it takes her about six months to write. Mm-hmm. 
to her sister to try and explain and, and I mean you know as we would understand it's kind of process you know this incredible trauma that she's that she's been through it was an operation that was te- that took place in her in her own house but by strange men who just come into her house and perform mm-hmm. this operation on her and the way that she writes about that I think is something that I mean nobody can be unmoved by it right because it's just so incre- it's such an incredible piece of writing as much as anything but um but i think the w- the way that she writes about it is 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 very kind of it just it feels very real to a lot of people it feels it, it could be somebody right although the conditions are obviously very much of their time it's something that you could be reading now um mm-hmm. and it, it just it it just opens up a kind of connection between you and and, and bernie that um it's, it's really quite well as I say it's extremely moving really but yeah so there's lots of poignant moments or the other anecdote that I you know I often tell is the one about when she burnt all of her when she another again a kind of trauma really but when she burns all her writing when she's a teenager because she's clearly mm-hmm. been scribbling for years and years and then she's so she's so um she's so troubled by her father's remarriage and uh she just one day she just decides she cut she 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 just needs to deal with this somehow. And how does she deal with it? She has this massive, great big bonfire and she just burns all of her stuff. And she, again, she writes about that really, really interestingly in an, another letter to her sister that says, you know, nobody knew about this at the time, but I just, I was just, she was clearly angry and she was clearly upset and she was clearly worried about this woman taking her mother's place and how that shouldn't be allowed, you know, and mm-hmm. just burns, burns all this stuff. It's really quite, it's quite extraordinary, really quite extraordinary. So we don't really have the juvenilia for her. No, we don't. We have her diaries, as I say, from mm-hmm. about 1760, I think, seven-ish. But no, we don't. But what we know is that apparently the novel that she wrote when she was a teenager was about the woman who is the dead mother of Evelina. <laughs> oh, okay. So it, it was like, it's not like the novel. Same like, universe. Yeah, so it's not like the novel kind of died, really. Like she she, she was clearly plotting the sequel, <laughs> like <laughs> that very kind of early age. Um but uh, but yeah, we don't have them, which is which is really sad. But you know, the, so, so I mean, sometimes my students sort of say to me, "Oh, you know, I'm going to write that novel. I'm going to like write the prequel." To <laughs> you know, um, but uh, who knows quite what it would have been like because it would have it was written a long time before she wrote Evelina. But nonetheless, she was clearly thinking ahead. <laughs> even right. Very, yeah, you know. Um, who were some of her influences? writing wise yeah so I mean I think the thing is there's there's loads but the problem is that she is not um so like so when Jane Austen writes Northanger Abbey and she puts in chapter five you know when she's trying to defend the novel and she says oh you know oh it's only a Cecilia it's only a Camilla it's only a Belinda Austen's quite upfront about well you know Francis Bernie and Mariah Edgeworth, right? They're the people who, mm-hmm. you know, really have an influence on me. Things when Bernie does that, she does something similar in the beginning of Evelina. There's like a like a preface where she talks directly to the people who are going to read the reviewers who are going to review her novel, and mm-hmm. she puts us. It's really interesting because she she writes a big long list of people who she seems to be claiming she's influenced by, and they're all men. So it's like Samuel Richardson who wrote Pamela and Clarissa. It's Henry Fielding who wrote Tom Jones, of course, or it's. Um, it's people like over the continent on in France. It's people and, and Europe. It's people like Rousseau and others. And then, you, but when you actually read her novel, you're like, mm, yes, I can see some of the influence of those writers. But actually, it's all the women writers who you don't name, right? In that in that mm-hmm. preface, who really influenced her. So I think she was really influenced by people like, well, Henry Fielding's sister Sarah, for instance. 
um, who wrote, who writes a really early sort of what we would now think of as a kind of comedy of manners sort of novel. So very much like sort of in the sort of Bernie Austin Edgeworth kind of vein. She writes one of those called The History of Ophelia, um, which I think very much influenced Frances Burney. I think Charlotte Lennox, um, who's another great novelist, as well as being, I mean, Lennox was also a poet and a playwright and a Shakespeare critic and all sorts of other things. But she also, I think, was a great influence on Burney, just like she was a great influence on, on Jane Austen as well, actually. And she's writing well, she lives to a ripe old age as well, but she, a lot of her novels are written around the middle of the 18th century. So they're influencing her. And people like Frances Sheridan, um, who was the wife of Richard Brinsley Sheridan, you know, School for Scandal, the playwright. Um, she, she wrote some really wonderful novels in the 1760s as well. And you can clearly see kind of lines of influence sort of between her writing and Bernie's as well. But Bernie never publicly acknowledges that, which I find odd. Um, so now if you had to pick just like, this is sad because now I want to read everything. But like if yeah. you had to pick like one thing that you're like, Lauren, you need to go read this like right now, like what would it be? Oh, I would I would absolutely pick Evelina. Yeah. OK. Definitely. I mean, so <laughs> Bernie's novels get longer, like longer and longer and longer. Um, mm-hmm. So the last one, The Wanderer is an absolute doorstop of a, of a novel. Uh, and I really love it. But, uh, but Evelina is the most... Um, it's the lightest, it's the brightest, it's the most fun, it's the most Austen-like of her novels. Um, it's, okay. it's, I mean, it's, it has some quite dramatic moments in it, and melodramatic moments, but it's breathlessly um, witty and humorous. And it has some moments where you just want to belly laugh. I mean, there's some really, like, just um, quite sort of grotesque bits that are a bit like things you'd later find in, I don't know, Dickens or something, you know, where you just mm-hmm. say, what the heck, is the monkeys just come into the novel? What's the-? And the monkey does terrible things and carriages get overturned and there's an old woman's race at one point, which is really, really strange. But it's it's just really funny. And it's very, it, I mean, it, it reminds me very much, or, or rather Northanger Abbey reminds me a lot of Evelina because you've got this sort of heroine who's a kind of, she doesn't, she doesn't know how to behave in the fashionable world, even though that's the world really she belongs in. And so she, she comes in and she's very intelligent. She's very witty sort of instinctively, but she doesn't really know how she's supposed to behave. A bit like Catherine Morland is a bit at, a fish out of water. And she just makes mistake after mistake after mistake. But the point is you don't laugh at Evelina. You just laugh at this ridiculous society that makes you abide by all these rules, which are just which are just so ridiculous, you know. <laughs> um, so it's like you see, you just see things from a totally different perspective because you see them through Evelina's eyes. So it's it's a great novel. It's re- like I say, it's really funny. It's very, it's 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 quite fast paced and a lot happens. Um, and it's quite an unexpected. If you haven't read anything like it before, I think it just it just opens up a whole different kind of novel, which can be really entertaining. I think. I mean, Austen just loved Frances Burney. You know, she was one of the subscribers to. Um, Bernie's third novel, Camilla. You know, you, if you look down the subscription list, it was one of the subscribers is Miss Austin of Steventon. Now, um, speaking of Austin, um, you belong to the Kent branch of the Jane Austen Society. I do, I do. I'm, I'm a member, and I'm also the patron, which is super exciting and ve- and very lovely. Partly, um, one of the things I, I I do is sort of help. Um, forge a kind of connection between the, the University of Kent and, and the society, which is which is gotcha. good. And um, I'm also still, because my, my first um, job once I finished my uh, PhD was I worked at Chawton House. And mm-hmm. um, so I'm still very much connected to kind of stuff that goes on there as well. So I sort of, I suppose I sort of help join things up 
a little bit but generally I'm just there also partly just as a big as a big Jane Austen fan right you know I'm just there as someone who who likes Jane Austen but it but you know likes but also has always tended to think about Jane Austen not kind of as a you know, like a lone figure, but uh, sort of connecting her up to other people and other mm-hmm. who I'm interested in. So I guess some of the, the the kind of talks and things I've done there have been about trying to, you know, move move from Jane Austen outwards, right, to other other people gotcha. kinds of things. Um, so yeah, that's been one of the things I've I've been doing. But it's really fun. I love I love I love chatting with the the people who are members of the society. It's great fun. I mean, one of the things about Jane Austen and, and the Kent branch is that Jane Austen had such a strong like connection to Kent as a county because her brother mm. you know Edward um the house he much preferred staying in rather than Chawton House was actually Godmersham and of course mm-hmm. a lot of Jane's letters to Cassandra are written from Godmersham when she's staying there and helping to look after her nephews and nieces so a lot of the members of the branch are very knowledgeable in fact many of them are actually descendants of um part members branches of the Austin family or close friends of the Austin family so there's a really strong sort of local connection which is a, a, an important part of a lot of the kind of activity that um that the Kent branch does which I think is is really fun I mean you know especially now that Godmersham is on our 10 pound note right so you know yeah. Jane Austen so um it's really brought Kent and the Jane Austen Kent connection sort of into focus for people in a way that I think it probably hadn't been for a lot of people beforehand so that's quite an interesting thing to sort of think about and explore and I get to take my students every year to to Godmersham and have a wander around which is oh that's lot nice of yeah I do love that it's really really fun especially oh, awesome. you know, when you're teaching something like you know I tend to do it just before we read Mansfield Park because I think mm-hmm. you know that novel's so much to do with you know estates and improvements and you know that kind of thing so mm-hmm. trudging around a, a Regency estate is a good thing to do before you read Mansfield Park to kind of yes. get your head around it really that is an excellent point <laughs> Because it's so it's so kind of abstract to us now, I think, to sort of think about what these what the, the just the scale of these estates right. and what it means. And there's a great story in Godmersham when at one point one of the owners just decided that the village blocked their view, so they moved the village of Godmersham over to the other side of the road to improve their view. Um, oh gosh! <laughs> yeah. So and you just think, okay, so that's 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 one thing that's one way that improvements can look in the period like we'll just take all of those Mm -hmm. people and we'll just move them over the road because they're spoiling my view um (laughs) my students always find quite amusing but to sort of see that and see how the landscape kind of changes because of the people who own it and run it and what that means for people is 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 kind of fun but um yeah the other person I, I think I think is is some is a really good place to go if you sort of go back from Jane Austen is um Charlotte Lennox who have um mm-hmm. I've said a little bit about before but I mean so like it's quite it's reasonably well known but Lennox's best well best known novel which is The Female Quixot um was published in what 1752 I think and but it's 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 like Northanger Abbey before Northanger Abbey it's it's this it's this really funny story about a young woman called Arabella who has just read too many romances and she thinks the world works like that, you know, just like Catherine thinks yeah. it's a gothic novel. And she, and so she, um, she, she, she gets her into the most terrible trouble. I mean, she's really imperiled by the fact that she thinks gardeners are really princes in disguise and all this kind of thing. And there's this poor guy who she's sort of destined to marry. He's, he's very nice, actually. He's quite a, sort of a worthy hero. But he, he sort of watches her do all these things thinking, oh, my God, like, how, how, how is this going to work out? How are we going to how is she going to grow up? You know, mm-hmm. and eventually she does grow up and she's disabused of all her sort of fantasies about how the world works. And it's it's a bit, <laughs> 
it's quite disappointing for the reader because you want to go oh no I want I want Arabella to still be Arabella but by the end of it she sort of has to realize no I have to grow up and be sensible but it's a very clever novel and it's again it's very witty and it's quite clearly something that influences both Frances Burney and Evelina but also particularly Jane Austen I think for Northanger Abbey so I definitely read Lennox and she was again she was really like Burney she was hugely popular in her lifetime she's really widely Mm -hmm. celebrated very well known very very influential and now hardly anyone reads her it's just extraordinary it's um I mean we find this with so many authors that we talk about on the show like why does this happen oh my god well I mean huge question I know it is a huge question and there's so many different there's so many different parts of it I mean I think well so one way of answering it I guess would be to say it starts to happen at the time that Bernie and Austen are writing, right? And Jane Austen knows it's mm-hmm. happening. That's why she writes chapter five of Northanger Abbey, like, I think. So that bit where she, in Northanger Abbey where she writes about, you know, everyone, novelists are an injured body. She says, you know, there's everyone's praising the 900th abridger of the history of England and everyone is is talking about how novels are just trash that forces the shelves of the circulating library to groan under the weight of them. And she knows this is happening and then she comes back with that amazing bit of of the novel where she talks about oh you know I mean because of course there are they are only novels right you know there are only works of literature that have genius wit and taste to recommend them so why should we take them seriously they're they're, they're the place where we really find what makes us tick as human beings but why should we you know like but why obviously then why should we pay attention so there's this deeply ironic kind of defense of the novel that she does and it's she knows it's how so she, and in that bit she very pointedly says you know the reviews Things like, you know, like Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine, the Quarterly Review, they start to develop a very strong anti-novel bias and a very much an anti-women bias. So I think that's, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons, quite honestly, when when Jane Austen says in Northanger Abbey, you know, when she tries to pick up examples of people who write books that have only have genius, wit and taste to recommend them, she chooses Frances Burney and Mariah Edgeworth as her examples, because she's very pointedly, I think, trying to say, look, women are leading the novel, women are dominant in the novel. And just because of that, I mean, that's that's partly why they're being rejected, right? Because people think, mm-hmm. are the novels for women, right? Even though men are reading it, <laughs> right, drive, right. many men are writing them. But she's, sort of, she's trying to defend the novel and defend the novel as something that women do really, really well. So she can see it happening at the moment she's writing, you know, I think, even Northanger Abbey, and then, you know, Bernie's a good example because when her last novel, The Wanderer, comes out in 1814, uh, she's subjected to the most appalling reviews, some of which don't actually, I mean, some of which just really don't like the novel itself. But some of them, it's it's really hard to tell where criticism ends and just like misogyny begins because right. they just, I mean, there's one in particular by a guy called John Wilson Croker who just writes about how basically Bernie has become an old hag she's like she's trying to be Evelina she's trying she's trying to be that young woman again and she's an old woman and she should just stop it and old women should not be public figures they don't have a place in the world and she's got I mean he describes her physical appearance and talks about Bernie's withered lip and it's just it's absolutely awful um but and I mean Bernie never stops being read exactly but what happens to her after the wonder is she gets she people don't read her novel so much um they actually read her letters which get 
published by her niece not long uh, sort of around the time of her death and they read the, the memoir that Bernie eventually writes of her father later on in her life and she's known as a diarist she's known as a memoirist and that's sort of okay that's the sort of acceptable side of Bernie but her novels just um, fall foul of this great forgetting that sort of happens um, and it's it's it didn't the thing is it didn't happen by accident right like it had to be right. made to happen and um, and I'm just really glad that we've we're coming out the other side of that now and that you know the last sort of few decades or so it's much more easy it's much easier now to read work by these women it's much easier to understand their importance in their own period and you know like those like your own you know they just make clear that there's just so much great there's so many great women writers out there and they don't deserve the fate that they were given along you know those lines Tell us about the Ladies Magazine project. Oh, this yeah. is really fascinating. Yeah, so this is another thing that kind of got forgotten, really. But um, so the Ladies Magazine. So I've I've just had a long interest in this particular women's magazine. It was one of the. Mm-hmm. I mean, there've been periodicals for and magazines for women before this one starts in 1770, but this is the most um, obviously sort of recognisably modern women's magazine, I guess I would say, and mm-hmm. it's it's one of the longest running. It runs until 1832. And it runs every month. Um, and it had a huge circulation at the height of its popularity. So like when Sense and Sensibility gets published, right, it has, what, 750 copies of printed. But we think that the ladies' magazine in the 1790s was selling about 15,000 copies a month. Oh, wow. Okay. So like it was really popular. Um, we know Jane Austen read it. We also know that Bronte read it, actually, as well. That's one of the th- – I'm really interested in, in Charlotte Bronte's interest in the ladies' magazine because she really liked it and found it very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it ran for a long time. So anyway, I – so I'm kind of on a, 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 on, a, on a personal mission to make the magazine available to people again now so they can read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to – because it's so big, because, like, there's just – I think I've worked it out one day. There must be something like 460,000 pages of it or something. It's in. Oh so obviously that's just like, who's going to read it? It's just too massive. So I've tried. So one of the, the projects um, that I worked on with a couple of colleagues at Kent was, was trying to um, make it accessible to people by giving a kind of index. So I've got like a, a mm-hmm. there's an index that's available that people can look at. So if they want to find information on particular people or topics or themes or whatever, they can just go to the things that interest them rather than be sort of overwhelmed by the enormousness of it. But the magazine right. is great. I mean, it just has everything in it from like short fiction and gothic novels in serial form to like essays on astronomy and recipes and like homemade cures for removing facial hair and agony right. columns it's just I mean it's just anything you can think of and much more besides is in it and it's 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 enormous fun to work with I mean what a resource for those two who are writing Regency romances <laughs> well that's true and in fact that's we have that so like we um one of the things that's been absolutely lovely about about the project is that we we set up a, a twitter feed and we had a we had a blog and done various bits and pieces um sort of public facing stuff alongside it and we we i i'm i'm just bowled over by people's interest in the magazine and and mm-hmm. and in the project and we do have quite a following like a literal following on twitter of people who are who are writing regency romances and, and yeah it really useful as a, as a resource i mean it also has things like um fashion plates for instance and reports on yeah. fashions and so they can be looked up and you know so it's a wonderful kind of document of the age really and how things change in those in those six decades so and it was like i say it was hugely influential i mean i was i was 
met people not everyone knows but that but there are shorts we know Jane Austen read the ladies magazine there's a short mm-hmm. story in there um called the shipwreck for instance which has a character in it called Brandon and another one called Willoughby for instance oh well well before sense and sensibility and we there's another story in there which is about uh, a kind of young woman who sort of gets accosted as she's as she's walking home and it's just like the episode in which Harriet um gets uh, accosted by the gypsies in Emma um and yeah so we know we know Jane Austen read it and like I say we also know that we also know that Charlotte Bronte read it because her mm-hmm. mother took it in and her mother loved the magazine so much that before she married Patrick Bronte she had copies shipped up from Penzance to Liverpool and the boat got wrecked so Bronte has this letter that she writes in like 1840 where she talks about she talks about when she was a kid um instead of minding her lessons scurrying off and picking up these copies of the magazine that she said were brine soaked so they must have smelt and felt salty because of the shipwreck mm-hmm. <laughs> and how she read these stories and how and she actually said you know with all my heart I wished I'd been born in time to contribute to the ladies magazine for then my mm-hmm. aspirations after literary fame would have met with due encouragement you know so she clearly loved it. and and then and then awfully the most awful thing was Patrick Bronte burnt them but what Charlotte says in the letter is that it's because he felt they contained foolish love stories. And then, you know, there are some love stories, but they're, and I guess some are foolish, but a lot of them are really not. A lot of them are quite sort of savvy and a bit sort of really quite cynical, actually, about love and romance. And there's some great kind of revenge narratives, actually. <laughs> like in the ladies' magazine of women who, you know, kind of, yeah, whose lovers go off with other women and the kind of things that they, they do to make them realise that was that was not a kind thing to do. <laughs> so. I um I feel like you could set up like a whole publishing company that's just like sort of pulling out these these stories and publishing them. Well, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, some, some of them are, you know, the thing is that, so one of the other things that I find fascinating about a magazine is that a lot of its material was written by its readers. So, okay. And, and, oh, that's awesome. So, and, and, pub, and, and sent in and, and they weren't a lot for a long time the magazine didn't pay anybody for the stuff they sent in so you can mm-hmm. imagine the quality varies quite a lot so some of it's extraordinary sure. and some of them are people who go on to be very famous later on like you know not just women as well but like George Crabbe the poet starts writing poetry mm-hmm. in the ladies magazine um Mary Russell Mitford I mean she's already publishing before she's in the magazine but our village first starts in the ladies magazine and then she publishes mm-hmm. it outside it so some of them do become famous I mean some of them we don't know who they were and it's probably no great surprise because they weren't that good so the quality varies mm-hmm. a bit but yeah I think in essence you're right I mean there's there's so much on balance there's so much great stuff in there and you know it's the kind of stuff that people like you know Austen and Bernie and Bronte and others were were reading and must have been affecting the way that you know whether it's Austen taking titles of characters names or situations from the magazine and you know turning them into bits of her novels or whether it's Bronte remembering the gothic I mean it's, it's really interesting in the letter it's quite clear that what what Bronte remembers from it is it's the gothic stories are the ones that she remembers right. and she names them um and she says well, I'm not sure if I can remember them because it was a long time ago but she remembers them precisely like she she really remember <laughs> them um and you know and, and think about how they sort of influenced her fiction but yeah I just think it's it's an amazing it's an amazing resource for the period and I just hope um I hope more people will start reading it and thinking about it and and using it in different kind of ways do you have a favorite contributor 
that you like sort of maybe look for too or someone that you've become obsessed with Oh, because <laughs> I find myself I feel like I would go down that rabbit hole I yeah I mean my obsessions are there are so many I mean I'm so I'm obsessed sometimes I'm obsessed with finding out who people are because a lot of the folks who wrote for the magazine it was quite I mean this is just again it's kind of normal for the period but they publish under pseudonyms or without the, uh, with just mm-hmm. anonymously so sometimes my obsession is I want to find out who they are so the first agony aunt for the magazine was called the matron and the matron had a column which ran for like you know a decade and a half and I still don't know who the matron was and that's driving me nuts oh. um but I and I've been trying to find out for about 10 years and I still can't work mm-hmm. it out <laughs> um but the but there's one woman who we found out uh, on the project and I'm just I'm so I'm so interested in her her, um, her name is uh, she published using the signature just R or sometimes R dot R dot and we realized that she's called Radagunda which is the best name ever Radagunda Roberts wow yeah and she was a translator and so a lot of the stuff that's in the magazine she's translated from French magazines and she translates okay. them into English but I think but I mean my French isn't very good at all um, but from what I know and from people who speak much better French than me she clearly adapts them as well it's not just like a sort of a, you know she's clearly turning them into her own anyway mm-hmm. and they're often like I mean she writes some of these revenge stories and they're quite extraordinary um, and she so and they, they're often illustrated in the magazine as well so I think which shows something about how popular they were with readers because they didn't they couldn't afford to publish many illustrations a month so anything that gets illustrated kind of has like a sort of headline status in the magazine sure so mm-hmm. I think the readers really like them too so she she's one of my favorite because their stories are just like wild I mean they're just ex- they're just extraordinary things happen in them and they're very dramatic you know they have suicides and sort of suggestions of cannibalism in some cases mm-hmm. sort of weird and strange things um so I find her very very interesting um but yeah I mean to be honest I, the each one I find out something about the you know I just find them all equally interesting they've all got a story that's the thing for me like each of these writers the more I find out about them I realize that they each have their own story and it's unique to them and often it's often they're quite they're quite extraordinary actually and you just think god we just need to know about this stuff you know because these are people who were being read you know in far greater quantities than Jane Austen was in her own lifetime you know they were reaching audiences Mm -hmm. that she clearly has you know, reached and well succeeded now but at the time she was writing you know more people would have been more people would have been reading Elizabeth Eames of Norwich who's a a, nov- a novelist in the magazine I'm really interested in than they would the person who wrote Sense and Sensibility under a you know without using their legal name on the cover and we are back see isn't Frances Burney like the most interesting person ever yes she yeah. is I really want a movie about Frances right now I would love to do a Frances read-along, but maybe not one of her really long novels. Maybe like Evelina, right? Okay. (laughs) Well, we're covering a bunch of people this season, and I feel like we're going to say this a lot this season, like, oh my God, we really want to do a read-along. Maybe we should have like a vote at the end of the year. Like, who do you guys want to do? Like, do a read-along for next year, yeah? Yes. Okay. Great idea. Okay. Something I really did like about that episode was just hearing about the ladies magazine and uh, the storylines and characters that might have inspired both Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte, right? The shipwreck, because mm-hmm. we present them always so much at odds with each other because of those letters, those nasty little bitchy letters that Charlotte Bronte <laughs> wrote. Um, what a cow. 
and I just it yeah it's nice to know that you know we separate them a lot but there is this common ground and it's this mm-hmm. literature magazine which Patrick didn't see any value in and was like burning it yeah. it's just trashy romance but like look at the people that were reading it like the greatest literary women of all time ever it's amazing I you know what and there's another thing that she said in there that made me think of Charlotte and of Jane and everyone probably that we cover honestly um when she was talking about Francis and she said women like Francis are problems for mm-hmm. their family and I was like oh it just kind of like hit me so hard because I was like yes I feel that all of these gals were sort of problems and they were trying to work out their literary lives and their money like so that they would no longer be problems and like a problem doesn't mean that people weren't like supportive or kind right. or pro writing but it meant like fear concern you know you love your child your child is talented but what does it mean to have right. a child who wants to be a woman writer like uh jane austen is still a problem for her family even though she read aloud to them and they thought she was funny right mm-hmm. so that's interesting definitely definitely it probably still applies today my, oh, my family my, probably yeah. says this about me <laughs> i'm sure my parents are like oh, when is she gonna stop podcasting <laughs> oh, <my laughs> She's com- always complaining about how busy she is. She never visits. It's the podcast. <laughs> now, uh, if you do want to go away and do some more reading, then uh, cut from the episode was a bit where Jenny says to read Evelina. So that's going on the vote, right? It's going on the poll. Mm-hmm. You can read m- way more information about the ladies magazine and download an index of the different titles and the authors and the articles that were published in there from www.kent.ac.uk you can just search the ladies magazine if you guys would like to um, connect with Jenny Batchelor I suggest that you check out her Twitter which is at Jenny Batchelor that is spelled J-E-N-N-I-E B-A-T-C-H-E-L-O-R and you can follow the progress of her work on the ladies magazine at ladies mag project on twitter as well um ladies magazine by the way like so so addicting <laughs> so amazing i actually have to i feel like i have to stay away because i will get like sucked into it for too long you've got homework to do lauren you've got research you've got to stay away I know. from those trashy women's magazines i know but you guys can get stuck in so that's good if you would like to know more about Bonnet to Dawn, who we are covering this season, if you have questions, concerns. Many concerns, I'm sure. <laughs> so if you would like to connect with us on the internet and perhaps vote for uh, an author to do a read-along for for next year, you can do that on the social medias. Hannah, what what is that? Where are those? What is the internet? I can't answer those questions, Lauren. I think mm. I've made that joke before, actually. I don't know if I can say that anymore. <laughs> do, we, do we make that joke every week? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at bonnets at dawn. You can email us, bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. And you can join our Facebook group by searching bonnets at dawn on Facebook, believe it or not, and answering two little questions. And we look forward to joining you, uh, folding you into our ranks, making you one with the hive mind oh wow sounds great and guys if you would like to leave us a little review if you enjoy the show you're into it you want to suggest an author that we should cover 
go ahead and uh, run over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. We're on Spotify now, by the way. Oh, yeah. And if you left that one star review with no comment, I'm watching you. Mm hmm. On iTunes. I know who you are. I know who you are. We don't, we don't yeah. know who you are. Uh, but <laughs> someone did leave that. So uh, if you want to leave us a nice one, that would be, <laughs> be really good. <laughs> I'm begging. Or at least constructive feedback. Yeah, constructive criticism. Like get rid of Hannah, um, hire a dog. Uh, yeah. Sounds good. More rapping. Mm. Definitely, definitely more rapping. Thank you.